I believe it's going to be awesome. Every time he comes and shares the Word of God, it just really blesses me. And I want to encourage you to open your heart today. Let's welcome him as he comes to minister the Word of God to us. Hallelujah. So, good morning. It's nice to see you guys. Would you guys do something for me? Would you just come closer? Come on, seriously. There's like 40 people in the room, and you guys are using like one pew per person. Come on, just let's come up in the middle, if you don't mind. Just come right up in here. As if, just pretend you liked each other this morning. As if you weren't allergic. As if you weren't allergic to one another. Uh, the reason we don't have a location for that, love costs everything. It's a webcast put on by Voice of the Martyrs. It's about the persecuted church. Um, our web strength, our signal strength here at this location is not... Seriously, would you? Would you come? Would you mind? Come on over. It's all right. It's good. Um, the reason we don't is... Uh, the reason we're not going to do it here is because our signal strength is not strong enough. We, to, to play that thing and to keep it going... It would stop every 15 seconds for buffering. And if you know anything about buffering, it's not the kind of thing you want to watch. It's, it's, it's the absence of entertainment. It's the absence of information is what buffering is. So we are uh, in the process of, of finalizing our plan for that. So we will let you know, God willing, in a couple days. By this Wednesday, we should be able to let you know. And if you weren't planning on coming out this Wednesday, the 23rd, let me encourage you to please join us. Normally we have a time of worship and prayer. This Wednesday we are going to be really blessed to have Bob Gladstone with us for the service, and he's going to be speaking that evening. Um, and if you remember Bob, if you've seen him before, you realize he carries a deep burden and, and a, a word from the Lord for us. He's been used in several different ways for our congregation, really to speak to us, uh, the Lord's mind and heart. So it's been very critical. His voice and we're really looking forward to having him. He's going to be in town this week teaching at Fire Chicago, doing a, a, an intensive course in 1 Corinthians, but has been gracious enough to agree to come and speak Wednesday night here. So we want you to really, um, if it's possible to join us, I want to invite you to do that. All right, this morning, uh, I'd like you to turn to 1 Peter, the second chapter, if you don't mind. 1 Peter 2. Just for a few minutes, I, I don't plan to take a long time this morning, but I, I do want to share with you a few things that are on my heart that the Lord really has pointed out. Um, about 18 months ago, yeah, it's about 18 months ago now, we had a Wednesday evening prayer meeting here at the church. And the Lord really dropped a significant word into our hearts. It was just a few of us. I think we were actually praying before the prayer meeting. A few of us were together, uh, Pastor Steve and Frankie and Dave. Aunt Jose, I think you were here for that night. We were just seeking the Lord, and the Lord really dropped First um, Peter 2 into my heart. And, and basically the word was, in, in keeping with that passage, the Lord said he was interested in having us build him a house. 
It's like, and, and that, that sentence, build me a house, it, it felt like a significant weight inside my heart. And if you know anything about the scriptures, of course, there's a, there's a massive concern for the house of God throughout the whole Bible, isn't there? There's a massive concern, the, a question, where is God going to live? And at first he lives in a garden. Then later on, we find him on top of a mountain. Pretty soon, he lives in a box that people carry on their shoulders, you know, with poles, the Ark of the Covenant. Then later on, he lives in a tent, the Tabernacle of Moses. After that, he lives in another tent, the Tabernacle of David. And then pretty soon, they build him a massive temple in Jerusalem. And and this is Solomon's temple where he dwells for about 400 years, give or take. And then they knock down the temple, these Babylonians do. In what year? Eric and Reuben? What year did they knock down the temple again? 580, well, how many? Yeah, that's right. 587 or 586, depending on your scholar. The Babylonians knock it down, and his house lies in ruins. Now... For a couple hundred years, that state of affairs remains, about 100 years, 120 years, until they reconstruct Solomon's temple. But when they reconstruct it, there's a real interesting scene in the Bible. And and the scene is that when the temple is finished, there's a whole bunch of people gathered there, half, half of which are crying, half of which are cheering. Why do you suppose the ones are crying? Why do you suppose they're crying? Because it doesn't compare to the, to the temple they knew, the temple they remembered. Solomon's temple was massive. I mean, it was extraordinary. The reconstructed temple was nothing close to that, either in size or in its beauty or power. And so there's the sense in which, yay, we made God's house again. And then there's another sense in which, oh my goodness, this is not a house fit for the Lord. And really, for hundreds of years, that crisis remains characteristic of the people. Like, there's a house, but it's... You know, remember when the temple was dedicated under Solomon? They had that massive barbecue. 120,000 bulls, you know. I mean, it just massive, unbelievable. And there was the, the fire of God fell, the presence of God. The priests couldn't minister because of the, the glory of God filled the temple. You know, that never happens again in the Bible. You never see that again, even when the temple's rebuilt. And it's almost as if the Lord was saying, this isn't good enough for me. This isn't my heart. All along, I've been looking for a habitation, a place to dwell. And I, I mean, you've made various things for me, boxes and tents and buildings. But it's not what I want in the end. I want to live in a shell. And... It's, it's as if the Lord was saying, and, and of course, he, he does say to us, and we'll read it in a second, he wants to live in something that's just as alive as he is. He wants to live in something that's just as alive as he is. Because in a sense, it's made up of what he's made up of. And that story of finding a home for God is one of the subplots of the entire Bible. 
And so when you, when you open the pages to 1 Peter 2 and you read the words that we're about to read, I, I just want you to think about that. The thousands of years that preceded the writing of this passage of Scripture in which the house for God controlled a nation's thoughts and ideas, dreams and agendas. And I want to tell you something. A house for God still controls his agenda today. He's still looking for a home. That home, however, looks radically different than what the Old Testament scriptures at times demonstrate. So let's read this together. First Peter. I'm going to start in um, chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, Put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. That's a quote from Psalm 34 there. You guys remember that one? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, 8. And Peter just integrates that right into his letter, saying if you've really tasted that, you'll see it. And then you'll want to keep partaking. Verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying a stone in in Zion, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who don't believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the nations or the Gentiles, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Amen. I've never really thought about this before, but I was reading a book by a guy named Frank Viola. He's kind of a, uh, you know, a brilliant guy, loves the Word of God, scholarly in some ways, but also very dynamic and vibrant in terms of his relationship with the Lord and his insight into the things of God. And he had a chapter in his book called The Homeless God. It was really provocative because, I mean, I mean, we all know God lives in heaven, right? I mean, that's his home. And yet, there is something about the story of the Bible that shows that for some reason, he's not content just to dwell there. And he's been looking for a home on the earth for centuries. 
And this chapter talked about God being homeless. And I, and I thought to myself, my goodness, I mean, we, we, we see lots of folks around our neighborhood who are homeless. And at times, you know, we're, we're able to help them out a bit. At times, you know, we see some wonderful success stories. But thinking about God and homelessness don't seem to gel in my paradigm. They don't seem to fit in the way I think of him. And yet there's a sense in which he is the ultimate homeless person. He is the ultimate vagabond. He is the ultimate traveler. Because you read his story in the word and, and, and he moves. At times seeming restless. I mean, you think about God in the wilderness with Israel. That he cannot stay in the same place. It's like the, he leads them, they pitch tent, he picks up and moves them somewhere else. Almost as if he's searching for something. Yet never quite arriving. And even the story of the Old Testament. They get, a, they get a tent, they get another tent, they get a temple, and it's still not quite right. It's still, something's not quite right about it. It's still not exactly what he's looking for. And it's in these pages of the New Testament that we find the, the ultimate expression of God's heart. And Stephen says it in Acts uh, 7. The Almighty will not dwell in a building made from human hands. Instead, he wants to dwell in a building made of human beings. And that building is distinct, and it's unlike anything else. Because all at once, it's made of clay and dust that God breathed on, and all at once, it's made of spirit. The very thing that when God deposits it into us, makes us come alive, changes our constitution, makes us into something we weren't, makes us into something that's fit for the habitation of God. And he chooses this above every other dwelling place that he's ever been offered. While we're here on earth trying to go to heaven, God's in heaven trying to get him home on the earth in the midst of a people. It's where he wants to live. And it's crazy. When you think about these words in 1 Peter 2, you're, we come to a living stone, a rock who is Jesus. And Peter says, when you come, you are like living stones being constructed into a spiritual house. I, I, had, a, I had a vision one time. This is, I, I don't have a lot of visions. I don't have a lot of dreams. It's just not typically true of me. But this was about 1997 when I visited a, the revival down in Pensacola. And I don't even remember the exact circumstances of when this happened to me. But I remember having a vision. And it looked like, I think, as I was looking at it from the air, from the, that point of view, it was like a, I think it was like a Greek Corinthian type temple. Like that you might think of like on, you've seen those pictures of the Mount in Athens, even today, the, the Areopagus, this place that's still there. It looked like that. And from a distance, I was looking down on it. And I was thinking to myself, oh, what a cool temple. And then it was like I, I, the, the view got magnified, so I was closer. Um, if you've ever seen any of those spy movies, you think of like a satellite looking down and, and it keeps getting closer and closer and closer until you're like right up somebody's nose or something. And it's amazing. But it was like that. I, was, I, I saw the, the building. I got closer. 
And at the next step, I looked, I mean, to me, it seemed as if the building were vibrating. And I couldn't tell if it was like my vision was bad or I couldn't focus or whatever it was. But I saw the building and it was like vibrating. There was, it was shaking as it were. And then was taken one step closer and I saw that the building was just, it was just alive. It was just made up of constantly moving things. From a distance, it looked solid, but the closer I got, the more I realized that it was just, it was in motion. The building was in motion. The whole thing was just constant motion, pieces and parts of beings in motion. And, I, and it was like God speaking to me saying, do you understand? This is what I'm doing. I'm making a building, but it's, it's not a building that derives from bricks, mortar, and stone. It's, it's not made of concrete, steel, and glass. My home, my house, consists of people. People full of me. And when I dwell in them, I animate them. When my spirit takes up habitation within them, they come alive. And they constitute my house, my dwelling place. And many times we've confused the issue. We haven't seen ourselves like that. You know, I, I know even in my life for a long time, I, I used to think about my relationship with God solely through individual terms, like it had nothing to do with anybody else. Like it was just Jesus and me. And if I spent enough time reading the Bible and praying and if I just took care of the things that I knew I needed to take care of, that that was the ultimate. I was a little naive. I was a little nearsighted. I, there were blinders on me because I didn't see the bigger picture that I'm a part of something God himself is constructing. Did you notice that when Pastor Steve shared earlier from 1 Corinthians 14, he was talking about pursued love and then eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And he said, the reason for that is to edify one another. Now, what is edification? Does anyone know what that means? Building. That's a construction term. That's why buildings are called like an edifice, if you ever heard that word. It means a physical construct. What, how do you build people? How is that possible? I mean, are we like, bring, bring over some more skin. We're going to put it on top. I mean, bring, bring over a little bit more hair. We'll put it. Some of you guys might be interested in that. No, bring, bring a little bit. I mean, we can't physically. I mean, we're not physically building people. And yet that language is brought out for a reason. Because from the point of view of, of the scriptures, again, what we're seeing is God's building a house made out of people in the spirit. That's why we want spiritual gifts. You can't build a spiritual house with normal tools. The only way to build a spiritual house is with spiritual tools. That's what these gifts are. Healing and prophecy and teaching and tongues. And those are tools for constructing a spiritual people. We absolutely need that. If we don't have it, there ain't going to be a spiritual house. crazy part about this to me is the next sentence, which is 
not only are we the house, but we're the priesthood itself. Right? It's like it's a crazy, I mean, it's a mixed metaphor. I mean, if, if, if we're the house, then you'd think like the angels must be the priests who stand in our midst and minister to God. But no, in the new covenant, it's like we're the house and we're the priests. I mean, it's like you can't be the temple and the priest at the same time. You've got to be one or the other, don't you? But it's something about this new covenant where every significant indicator of, you know, every significant part of people's relationship with God in the old covenant is defined in us. We're not even, we're not just the house, we're the priests who stand in the house. Somehow we're the house and the ministry that goes on in the house. It's all wrapped up in who we are. And as the priesthood, we offer, as Peter says, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 5. So we're not up in here, you know, offering chickens and turtle doves and bulls and goats and rams. What are we up in here offering? We're offering prayer. We're, we're offering worship. We're, we're offering fasting. We're offering justice and freedom. We're offering righteousness and integrity. We're, I mean, we're bringing, this is what we bring. We present our body, Romans 12 says. We renew our mind. All of this is spiritual sacrifice. And if you want to blow your mind for a minute, you think about this. Every goat, every ram, every bull that's ever been sacrificed to the Lord in the Old Covenant, every time smoke wafted itself up into his nostrils in heaven, you know what he's looking to, you know what he's thinking of? Number one, he's thinking of his son. Number two, he's thinking of his people who are destined to fulfill what this is pointing toward. It's like, you know, at times, we, on birthdays or something, we used to do this in my house a lot. My dad or my mom would make out for us like a scavenger hunt type of thing. They would give, me, they would give us clues. And you'd have to follow the clues from one spot to the next. And after the last clue, there would be a, present there and the the best one of all was when the 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 thing started in the living room and then ended up in the living room but by the time i had got back to the living room there was a new bike that's my price is right voice a new car you know but every time i'm following the clues and they know the thing is they knew where the clues were pointing me i didn't i was just following the clues but they're like and i did it with i think i did it with my son isaac with the same thing, a new bike. But it was like, the thing that was in my heart was like, man, I can't wait till he gets to that last clue. You know, even when he just started, I mean, it was fun. It was fun watching him. But all the while I was like, man, he's just going to be blown away. I can't wait till he gets, I can't wait till he gets. In my heart, I feel like, man, that's the father. When he's watching bulls and goats being offered to him, he's like, I mean, it's good, but I can't wait. I can't wait till they can offer me sacrifices that are spiritual, that are real, beyond these things. Do you know what Colossians says? Colossians says that the substance is found in Christ. The shadows are what he fulfills. We think of the temple of Solomon as this concrete, monstrous you know, edifice. In the Lord Jesus Christ and according to the new covenant, that's a shadow this is the substance. This is, what, this is right here what God's been longing for in his own heart for millennia. 
This is right here what God said before he created the world. He was going to build a place for his name and a place for his habitation. We are it. It's why we need far less than we think we need to do the will of God. We just need his presence. Because he makes us into what he wants. And when he does that, then we can execute whatever responsibility. How do you suppose it is that we are going to declare his excellencies? Simply by becoming one of his excellencies. As a people, we just, we want to become his dwelling place. And in his eyes, there's nothing more beautiful than his dwelling place. Because he's fashioning it by his spirit. Psalm 127 says, unless Yahweh builds the house, they that labor, labor in vain. We can build him dozens of temples. We can build him dozens of, of churches, church buildings. We can, be, we can build him anything we want. But if he's not doing the actual construction by building a spiritual people through the power of his Holy Spirit, then it's worthless. It's vanity. And that's such awesome news because God is so deeply in love with his people. He thinks of them as a bride. You guys know that in scripture, right? And that there's a wedding at the end and there's the, the powerful love of, of, a, of a groom for a bride. And it's that same love that he focuses now on his dwelling place, his people, the place where he wants to rest, his home. Don't you guys want God just to be at home among us? Do you know what it's like to be at home? You, you think about that? You know, when you go home, it's like all pretensions are off. You don't have to be something there. You don't have to, you know, if you're the kind of person that walks around in his boxers and T-shirt at your house, you're just, you're at home. You're not playing. You don't have to put on, you don't have to put on makeup just to be at home. It's the place where you are probably most uniquely and most consistently yourself. Do you understand what I'm saying? When you're at home, there's no pressure for you to be anything else but who you are. Wouldn't you like God just to be himself in our midst? Wouldn't it be awesome if just our meetings, our gatherings together were just defined by the fact that God just, he's, he just acts like himself here. He liberates people. He heals people. He raises up the brokenhearted. A bruised reed, he won't break. A, a, a smoldering wick, he won't put that out. There's, there's something tender and nurturing about him. Just whenever we're together, we find God doing that. We find him inspiring us to do his work. We find him motivating us and thrusting us out into the work. I mean, I, honestly, I just, I just want God to be himself. I want him to look at us and say, man, that's a people... I can live there. Not just visit. Visitation is great. It's powerful. It'll change your life. You'll never be the same. But it's not enough. We want habitation. We want God not to just sign a lease with us, but to buy up the whole property, man. We want him to possess us. Which is precisely how this passage, you know, brings itself to an end. Chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race. A, hoil, a, a, ho, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This is Peter quoting Exodus now. It's Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. You can make a note of that. It's, 
It's when God makes his first covenant with Moses and, and says, I got myself my people. And here's what you are to me. You're, you're a royal, you're, you're, a, you're kings and priests before me. And you're mine. We're his because he's called us to exercise authority, kingship, and to, and to humbly serve priesthood. And that is the kind of people that God says they belong to me. That's what he's looking for. That's a beating in his heart. That's what I want to be a part of. Because in verse 10, the reality sinks in. Once you were not a people, but now you have become the people of God. Once you haven't received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I can't understand how God's mercy is so powerful for us. All the times we take it for granted, all the times we fail to remember what he's done, how he's worked, how he's revealed himself. And this is another scripture verse. This one's Hosea 1.10. Originally, this is the, the word of God through the prophet Hosea, where he said first, he said, first, I'm going to name your child, not a people. How do you like that? The next time, next time you want to go into prophetic ministry, consider this. One of your children might be called, you're not my people. How's that? How's that for a prophetic word? I mean, how disappointing, how broken. And yet along with that was a promise. Right now, you're not my people. But one day, you who are not a people are going to be called my people. And, and here even Gentiles... <laughs> Once you were not a people, you were nothing before the Lord. Now you've become something. Once you had nothing, no knowledge of mercy, now it's absolutely consumed you and wrapped you up into the agenda of God. You know, I don't know about you, but there, if, if we don't start thinking more clearly about the investment that heaven is making in us as a people, we're never going to rise to that place of responsibility and effectiveness in God. It's one thing to cry out for visitation and have, a, have an experience with God that gives you a little buzz and energizes you for a couple months. It's another thing to completely be possessed by him to the point that the rest of our lives are marked out by his abiding presence because we become his habitation, not just with language, not just in Bible teachings, but in reality, in point of fact. And with all of my heart, this is what I'm living for. And if, if there's nothing else that happens this morning, my hope is simply that there would be a spark inside of you that just yearns for that reality. What would it be like for God just to be himself in our midst consistently, day in, day out, doing what he wills because we've provided for him a home and that here on earth and, and as much as we are called and invited to do his work, we just see ourselves in that way, a spiritual house, spiritual priesthood, spiritual sacrifices, declaring his excellencies because we're his possession, a people that he forms now that we just volunteer to get together and spend some time and, well, we need more volunteers for this ministry. We need more bodies, warm bodies to do this. Hey, 
We're a spiritual house, a place of God's dwelling. We're alive. We're a structure that's alive. And that is awesome and amazing. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We absolutely yield ourselves into your hands. We want to do what you want. Lord, we don't desire to manufacture something artificial. We don't desire to do as Saul did and offer offerings that were unauthorized. We're not trying to do that. We're not trying to step out of order and construct something that it isn't time for, like David. Lord, we want to follow you. We want to be led by you. We want you to construct us. We want you to build us. We want to become that house, Lord, that's absolutely fit and ready for you to move in and take long-term possession, God. So that as long as we abide here, even as Second Peter says, as sojourners, as aliens and strangers, that the reason we're abiding here that way is because that's how you are when you're with us. Moving, working, revealing yourself. But all the time, Father, in the midst of your people, and in the end of the day, we know that that's our destiny. That new Jerusalem that descends from heaven, Lord, that place where you will establish yourself forever. There won't even need to be any sun because the Lamb will be our light. We praise you. We know that's our destiny. We're longing for it. And even now we expect and look forward to tasting and seeing that you are good to us in this way. Even now, even in the here and now. So God, stir our hearts. Change our lives. Change our ways of thinking, Lord. Build a spiritual house that honors you, that is defined by you, and that is made up of your Spirit's work. We thank you for that today. In the name of Jesus, amen.